Okay, good evening, everyone, and welcome. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are broadcasting this lecture on lands that have been inhabited by indigenous peoples, and we would like to honor the centuries of indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. My name is Sarah, and I am a public programmer here at the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center. I am joined tonight by Adrian Petrie, our Visitor Services Coordinator. We are thrilled to welcome everyone to the autumn series of our virtual museum lectures. We hope these lectures provide a bit of historical joy and also spark imagination and exploration through our city's rich history. A quick note for those of you watching on mobile devices. Um, please check your audio settings in the YouTube app if you have if you are having audio problems. You may also not have access to the chat box, so you can always post comments or questions in the regular comments below the video. While YouTube is our best option for our lecture series, it isn't the best option for interactivity. So please do feel welcome to ask questions in the chat box, and we'll moderate them at the end of the presentation. We'd also love to hear about your connections, memories, and stories to the first world. Oh, mm. yeah. <laughs> Before we start tonight's lecture, let me tell you about our upcoming lectures. Don't forget to mark your calendars. There is only one remaining. On December 8th, our curator Kathleen Powell will, pre will present a talk on local fashion and our new upcoming exhibit, Marking Time, which features the important movements of life and the textiles that go with them. We've been working hard to organize the next slate of lectures. And instead of just telling you about that, I'm so excited and happy to announce our great virtual museum lecture series lineup for winter 2021. We're so happy and excited to begin the series next uh, next year with special guest Rochelle Bush, local historian with the BME Salem Chapel on February 2nd. Rochelle will deliver a talk about the many abolitionists who visited St. Catharines during the long fight for emancipation. On February 16th, Sarah will be here to discuss the myths of the Underground Railroad and some of the challenges those myths present in interpreting such a popular, secretive, and fascinating history. On March 2nd, I'll be here with a talk about our city's urban development titled No Exit, The Dead End Streets of St. Catharines. On March 16th, our curator Kathleen Powell will be here to discuss the Boer War and our local participation in her talk titled For King and Country. On March 30th, we're very excited to welcome local geographer and former Brock University map librarian Colleen Beard to talk about the well, sorry, the history. That's not right. To talk about this is a to talk about the historic Welling Canals mapping project. There we go. That's correct. Then on April 13th, we're also very excited to welcome students from the Brock University Historical Society to present a mini symposium of their recent under, undergraduate work. And finally, on April 27th, 
we'll close out the winter session of the virtual museum lecture series with a very special guest, author and historian at the Canadian War Museum, Dr. Tim Cook, who will give a talk about remembering the Second World War and his new book, The Fight for History. And <laughs> we're already working on a lineup for the fall of 2021. Can you believe it? The only thing that's being planned that far in advance these days. <laughs> um, Sarah and I have been bouncing topics back and forth. There's a few sports topics. There's a few, uh, there's a few other transportation topics uh, that we definitely have to cover. So, uh, but if you have a topic that you'd like to see presented as a part of the series, please send us a note and we'll try to include it. Oh, I know I'm so excited for all that we have to look forward to in the winter and the spring. Uh, okay, so, I sincerely hope that everyone has been enjoying our virtual museum lecture series. So might I encourage you to make a donation to the museum in support of our programming. Your donations help us continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. So give us a call at 905-984-8880 during our operating hours to make a donation. Your donation does make a difference, so thank you. Okay, and on to our lecture for this evening. What was the Black experience in St. Catharines in the 1850s and 1860s? This era signaled the peak of activity on the Underground Railroad where Black refugees accessed a secretive network of routes and safe houses organized by abolitionists to finding freedom. As part of this network, St. Catharines served as one of several destinations in Canada for Black refugees seeking a free life. We take great pride in our city's role in the Underground Railroad. We tell a narrative of opening our community to freedom seekers, hosting and helping them settle, find housing and work, and build new free lives. While this narrative is grounded in historical source material, it is not always inclusive of all voices. We must ask ourselves if the Black experience is included in the story we tell about St. Catharines and the Underground Railroad. Are Black voices included? The issue of excluding voices from a historical narrative often stems from a gap in the historical record. Sometimes we just don't have the verifiable sources to offer the perspective or experience of marginalized populations. To consider why this is the case would take a whole other lecture. But in the context of the Black experience in St. Catharines in the 1850s and 60s, we do in fact have a source that gives voice to the marginalized. Entitled, The Refugees from Slavery in Canada West, Report to the Freedmen's Inquiry Commission, or better known as the Howe Report. As Adrian will explain in more detail later, the Howe Report was a result of a commission tasked with planning and eventually implementing the transition of Blacks out of slavery and into society as citizens. 
in determining recommendations for how this transition could be made as smoothly as possible in the United States, the commissioners interviewed prominent white citizens as well as free black individuals living in communities across Canada West. And this included St. Catharines. So the Howe Report does offer us a written testimony of black voices and records their firsthand experiences living in St. Catharines at the time of the Underground Railroad. Yet what these voices reveal in the report expose a stark contrast to the narrative we've become quite comfortable telling. Tonight, we will take a look at the 1863 Howe Report to consider how racism embedded itself into Canadian society, even in well-intentioned communities like St. Catharines. This lecture will make us feel uncomfortable. The language in the report we will be reading from is uncomfortable, as are the experiences recount recounted by free Black people interviewed. But if we understand how racism has seeped into our history to become a systemic problem, we can place a different lens in our community today and take a more nuanced look at what must change for the future. The narrative we often tell about the Underground Railroad and Black history in North America more generally has a tendency for us to distinguish Canada as a place of freedom, opportunity, and tolerance from the United States, a place where racism, discrimination, and slavery flourished. However, it's important to note that Canada has its own history of slavery too. Since the British Empire was heavily active in the transatlantic slave trade, so were the British colonizers settling in what is now Canada. Many white settlers coming to the Maritimes, Quebec, and Ontario owned slaves, and that included here in Niagara. Now, legally, this changed slightly in July 1793, when the Upper Canada Legislature passed an act to prevent the further introduction of slaves and to limit the term of contract servitude in the province. This was the first and only piece of legislation to limit enslavement in the British Empire until 1833, when an act for the abolition of slavery was passed, abolishing slavery through all British colonies, including Canada, as of August 1st, 1834. Now, at the same time that Upper Canada was moving to limit the slave trade in the colony, the United States was moving to further entrench the institution in law. As slavery, as anti-slavery sentiments grew in the North and many Northern states began to abolish slavery, slave owners in the South began to fear that free states would become safe havens for runaway slaves. The fugitive Slave Act introduced in 1793 was designed to give slave owners and their agents or bounty hunters the power to search for escaped slaves within the borders of free states, essentially legalizing the kidnapping of black individuals. This law was further strengthened in 1850, now forcibly compelling citizens to assist in the capture of runaway slaves. 
If you'd like to learn more about this topic, I invite you to watch a lecture that I delivered for the Virtual Museum Lecture Series in May earlier this year. Now, the Underground Railroad was established as a direct result of the Fugitive Slave Acts. Canada became a promised land for freedom seekers and a destination on the Underground Railroad after 1834. St. Catharines specifically grew to be a key terminal on the Underground Railroad network. I think I might have a map of this. Oh, there we go. Awesome. Right. Thank I think you. I'm a slide. I was a slide ahead. Sorry, Sarah. <laughs> okay, we're good. We're good. Uh, so by the mid-1800s, we were already considered a large, prosperous city with many opportunities for those who came searching. Our, our proximity to the United States border without directly neighboring the other country also made St. Catherine seem safer to those escaping enslavement. Many found work in the service industry and at the many mineral spa resorts in the city. And the rural lands surrounding the city also offered further opportunity. Refugee slaves settling in St. Catharines were determined to find freedom, but to build it, but also to be, build a community for themselves to thrive in. Freedom seekers settled on land granted by abolitionists and prominent citizen William Hamilton Merritt, with the most central area being around North Street, Geneva Street, and Welland Avenue. This area became known as Colored Town. In 1852, Merritt, along with other abolitionists, founded a group called the Refugee Slaves Friends Society with the intention of assisting incoming refugee slaves arriving and settling in St. Catharines. Over 800 freedom seekers settled in St. Catharines in the 1850s. And the Friends Society found land, jobs, and resources to help these immigrants establish themselves in their new homes. As progressive as it might seem on the onset, the establishment of neighborhoods like Color Town and organizations like the Refugee Slaves Friends Society are inevitable products to what is called race thinking. Sociologist Vic Sadowich defines race thinking as, and I quote, the tendency of human groups to make a distinction between us and them. And simply put, the result of race thinking is racialism, or I quote, the unequal treatment of one group purely because of its possession of physical or other characteristics socially defined as denoting a particular race. By the time of the Underground Railroad, racialism was already deeply seated in Western society. This is because the sentiments and prejudices that justified colonialism and black slavery for centuries were already firmly set people of color, including black people, apart from white settlers in a colonized society like Canada. So the argument can be made that the plot of land granted to black refugees for the colored town settlement was not selected arbitrarily. 
Rather, this settlement was located on less valuable land in what was then the outskirts of the city. And this was likely a consequence of race thinking, whether the decision was made intentionally or otherwise. Furthermore, the establishment of social welfare organizations like the Refugee Slaves Friends Society were arguably paternalistic in nature, as white prominent citizens aided the downtrodden other in civilizing them within the rigid norms of white Christian society. Racism and racialism has everything to do with power. In the context of 19th century Canada and the United States, race was used as a signifier of who got to hold power. Race determined access to society and the ability to exercise autonomy from choices like housing, education, and employment to holding positions of traditional power, like in business ventures, land ownership, or political office. So consequentially, race thinking and the idea that any group that was not white was other resulted in a large chunk of the population being excluded from participating in society. Such prejudices and treatment were at the time justified by science. Anthropologists and biologists of the 19th century believed that some races were biologically superior to others and worked to find a correlation between quantifiable measurements in the body, i.e. skull and brain size or the shape of the eyes and forehead to the mental and cultural capacities of a group. This type of science seemed to have a knack at placing white people or Caucasians at the top of the racial hierarchy. The consequences and assumptions of race thinking were at the foundation of the 1863 Howe Report. At the turn of the Civil War, between the battles of Antietam on September 17th, 1862, and Gettysburg in July of 1863, the Lincoln government steadily worked at establishing and beginning to implement plans for reconstruction. The Emancipation Proclamation in September of 1862 is the beginning of that shift in policy, but the Howe Report and the resulting policy implications are at the center of the post-war plans. Lincoln's cabinet began implementing these social policies of reconstruction with each military victory. One of these projects was the American Freedmen's Inquiry Commission, which was tasked with planning and eventually implementing the transition of Blacks out of slavery and into society as citizens. The commission was struck by Secretary of War Edward McMaster's Stanton, and he named James McKay, Robert Dale Owen, and Dr. Samuel Gridley Howe as commissioners. The commission was first tasked with studying the condition and capacity of slaves who remained in the South and the refugees who had, who had escaped to freedom in the North and to Canada. The commissioners went about their study in a few ways. They interviewed military and government officials in the South 
and they sent surveys to essentially their mailing list of practicing doctors who might be able to provide medical and observational context and information to their mandate on the condition of refugees across the United States. Most importantly for our purposes this evening, and as Sarah mentioned earlier, how visited Canada West, including St. Catharines in 1863, and sat down with community leaders and refugees themselves. Excerpts of these interviews were used as evidence in the report, but the interviews were not used in full. Thankfully, the interviews and surveys held at both Harvard University and the National Archives in the United States have been transcribed by a local Black history champion and friend of ours, Donna Ford. And the full interviews provide an eye-opening perspective of racism, racialism, and prejudices. That's a hard word for me, and I apologize in advance. Um, I'm going probably going to not do well with that word tonight, so I apologize in advance. Uh, it doesn't make it any less serious. Uh, and prejudices in St. Catharines at the time. The Howe Report eventually led to the creation of the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, or simply the Freedmen's Bureau in 1865. The agency was responsible for directing provisions, clothing, fuel, and temporary shelter and medical care to former slaves and refugees returning home from Canada and the North at the end of the Civil War. The programs that the Bureau took on were initially successful but their efforts were quickly stymied by the Southern states who passed a number of laws which placed conditions on the rights, enfranchisement, and freedom of newly freed slaves and refugees. The program was effectively abandoned after Lincoln's assassination in April of 1865 because his vice president, now President Andrew Johnson, insisted on the right of states to pass their own laws about the post-war treatment of Blacks and he felt that the Bureau offered too much assistance and that Blacks were becoming reliant instead of independent. It was quickly defunded in 1866 by Congress and then abolished in 1872. The Bureau wasn't perfect by far, and as a result of the tone, language, and focus of the Howe Report and the Commission's reports, faced everyday problems and wasn't overly successful. First, the Bureau placed strong emphasis on marriage, as did the Howe Report. Marriage was a focus because it was a civilizing act that would stop interracial intercourse and would help to lead Blacks into living in the most ideal and Christian way. Sarah will get into this a little bit later. Many Blacks were very happy to have legal recognition of their marriages since they were not allowed to marry while they had been slaves. But the Bureau refused to let married Black women take up solely domestic roles, maintaining that all members of Black families who could work must work. With a few exceptions for, with a few, sorry, is, is my, Sarah's, just wanna double check something. Wanna make sure that, uh, sorry. There's a little technical snafu here. So no matter sure. how hard you try, they always come up. Okay, it's good. It's just, I can see you. And I was worried that it was you on YouTube the whole time while I was talking. I think it might be both of us. 
It's just one. It's just. Oh, it's just speaker. one. Yeah. Okay. So we're good. We're good. Okay. Sorry, everybody. Sorry for that. I just I saw Sarah taking a drink of water, <laughs> and I was like, "That's great for everybody else." All right. I apologize. <laughs> okay. Um, so anyway, I was talking about how the bureau refused to let black. Uh, married Black women take up solely domestic roles, maintaining that all members of Black families who could work must work, with a few exceptions for widows and people with disabilities. Any women who did not participate in field work were deemed as vagrants and resources, including food and clothing, were withheld. These conditions and strict codes were a straight-up contradiction and all about controlling the newly freed population. First, to maintain the number of farm laborers, and second, especially in the South, to begin the introduction of segregationalist policies. Second, the medical treatment of refugee that refugees received was poor, if they were treated at all. Many nurses and doctors refused to treat Black people, and the popularity of racialism in medicine, as we'll see later, was not especially helpful to the treatment of biracial people, who were thought to be, quote, a lesser breed, unquote, than, than both pure whites and pure blacks. Education on the other hand was a big hit and by the 1870s, just before the Bureau was abolished, there were more than a thousand schools for freedmen's in the South. Unfortunately, the states were responsible for education after the Bureau was eliminated. And by the 1890s, most of the Southern state legislatures defunded education for blacks and then followed up with the disenfranchisement bills and segregation laws, which started Jim Crow and lasted over 50 years. I think it's important at this juncture to offer some criticism that has been assigned to the report itself in an effort to warn and explain some of the difficult opinions, language and conclusions included therein. Many of the arguments in favor of maintaining slavery stemmed from the development owner theory sorry, the benevolent owner theory. It's another tricky word. <laughs> that slaves had relied on their masters for food, clothing, shelter, and work for so long that slavery had stunted their growth and, re and rendered them incapable of living on their own. This thought extended through to their rights and freedoms as new citizens, that they could, not, that they could be given freedom, but without restriction, they wouldn't be capable of organize, organized or regular participation. In that way, the Freedmen's Commission was both a social policy and a political document aimed at quelling the great fear and consternation across the South and through Congress. What to do about all these former slaves? There had been much noise throughout the Civil War about this question, and I say noise because most of these concerns weren't raised for the benefit of those emancipated, but those who lost their slave labor. These arguments were entrenched and despite all the evidence to the opposite, the remedy to their general jollity and childishness, which uh, made them incapable of a serious life was included, not dismissed in the report. Indeed, many parts of the report, including a section labeling all refugees in Canada West as cheerful were included to fulfill or quell ideas and worries about the impacts of emancipation. Their jollity in one section was meant to disenfranchise them and their cheerfulness in the next was meant to guarantee that they wouldn't go about making trouble if they did have the vote or freedom or citizenship. 
The report was to represent the government's intention to let newly freed slaves in uh, newly freed slaves join society without any barriers to their freedom and their participation as citizens. But the report and the testimony don't always match. That's uh, that the contents of the report don't necessarily reflect the reality, nor the testimony given is another major criticism. I say that it doesn't match the testimony given because the testimony featured many black voices that were not included in Howe's report. Instead, Howe privileged white voices and experiences, many of which either perpetuated negative tropes and stereotypes or served the purposes of the report. It's such a shame, but it makes sense considering their audience was the United States Congress and Southern Confederate legislatures. A really good example of that is the uh, is the medical part that we'll get into a little bit later, where uh, doctors like Dr. Mack claimed that uh, refugees didn't handle the climate well and that they needed to return home. Whereas a black, uh, a black testimony effectively, Sarah and I like to joke, effectively said, we deal fine with the weather by putting it on a sweater. So we'll get into that a little bit later, but that's, that's a really good example of um, sort of a white opinion that doesn't match the black testimony. This brings me to another interesting point. Congress and the South in the 1860s argue, argued effectively the same thing that is argued today about the report, just with different perspectives, which is that it presented a too rosy picture of the capacity of black people to survive without slavery. Whereas today it paints too rosy a picture of the black experience since it ignored black voices perpetuates racist and pro-slavery tropes for the benefit of its audience in Congress and downplays the impact of the onslaught of prejudices they faced. Howe and the other commissioners' uh, sub uh, subscription to what some historians call pseudoscience or what we're calling tonight the presence of racialism in medical practice is by far the source of greatest criticism of the report. The report is tinted by their and other doctors like Dr. Mack of St. Catharines belief that the traits and conditions of which they found the refugees was largely due to the color of their skin and the inherent behaviors and ailments that accompanied their blackness. The inclusion of these casually racist statements and their justification as genu genuine medical science have made the report's conclusions inherently racial racialized and have rendered many observations ridiculous. Which, contra which contradicted the commission's goal to protect new freedom of black individuals in the United States in the eyes of both decision makers in the 1860s and historians today. While the report itself is to be read with that important historical context and not, uh, and not in itself a true or accurate depiction of the refugees in Canada, the interviews and surveys and testimony conducted for the report are the valuable primary source which shed light onto what kind of experience black and other people of color and indeed any non-English, and I mean England, English, immigrant or refugee might have lived in St. Catharines at the time. It also explains why so much focus was placed on their ability or capability to behave as proper citizens. But it is these myths and tropes put forward by documents and beliefs like the Howe Report, which fueled and fuels the systemic racism that has plagued ours and other communities for generations. The report is very organized and it is very straightforward to read. 
Howe drew out the themes both from testimony and from the commission's inquiry to organize his conclusions and inferences. In the end, the report offers 10 conclusions and 10 inferences. Most land in, uh, most land in a few thematic categories and some are repetitive, but it is how we've decided to organize our lecture this evening. I'll be looking at the idea of legal freedom as opposed to freedom from racism, along with the medical racialism that dictated the experience of Black people in our community. Sarah will be looking at uh, the clear and casual systemic racism along with the great contradictions in opportunity and participation in society that also dictated the experience of Black people here in St. Catharines. We'll feature text from the interviews that was not included in the report itself. And this is one of the great criticisms of the report, as I already mentioned, that those included in the report are not reflected, reflective of the, those interviews, making the transcriptions for the interviews far more valuable to our understanding of the Black experience in our community. Oh yeah, there's our inferences. Oh, you're on mute, Sarah. It's bound to happen. <laughs> of course. <laughs> okay, I'm not on mute anymore. In the preface of the Howe Report, Howe writes, quote, the refugees in Canada earn a living and gather property. They marry and respect women. They build churches and send their children to schools. They improve in manners and morals, not because they are picked men, referring to their fortitude to escape slavery and take the dangerous journey to freedom, but simply because they are free men. Each of them may say, as millions will soon say, when I was a slave, I spoke as a slave. I understood as a slave. I thought as a slave. But when I became a free man, I put away slavish things. Refugees were legally freed when they crossed into Canada and thought of themselves as freed people, but underlying racism and prejudice already deep-seated in communities here, including St. Catharines, chained them in different ways. While they were legally able, their autonomy to earn a living, own property, raise a family, and educate their children was severely limited due to the color of their skin. I'd like to compare the quote above to the testimony of C.P. Camp, the town clerk and treasurer of St. Catharines as published in the Howe Report. I'll quote, the colored people get on very poorly. They steal our sheep, our chickens and everything else. They are a curse to any country. I wish they were all back South for my part. They are a lazy set especially the young men. We have to support them while they live and bury them when they die. We have some Irish laborers. I don't know that the colored people are any worse than the Irish are. These are words from a municipal officer in September 1863. Words said several years after Colored Town was established and the Refugee Friends Slave Society began operation. How could such sentiments foster success and autonomy for the Black refugees immigrating to St. Catharines? Throughout the testimonies compiled for the report, many Black interviewees recount that based on experience, racial, racial prejudice was very strong 
if not stronger in Canada compared to the US. Still, those interviews state that despite the inherent prejudice they faced, they would continue to stay in Canada because of the, their freedom under the law. Henry Gibson, a black gardener who had been living in St. Catharines for about seven years at the time of the report, this is what he stated, quote, I want to be where I can be free. That is the main thing, to be where I can have any rights as much as any man, free and equal. Many black folks took the report as an opportunity to prove their population's worth in society stating that many paid taxes, earned an income, lived independently, and did not rely on charity. These attributes were symbols of their civilization and assimilation according to white society. It was also evidence used, against, used to fight against the stereotypes and assumptions made about the black race. Here's Gibson again, quote, the colored people are generally doing pretty well. A good many of them pay taxes. They make a pretty good living. There are two charitable societies here for helping poor colored people, but I don't belong to either of them. The principal part of the people here are able to take care of themselves without coming upon charity. They are like other people. Here, Gibson speaks to something that came through in many testimonies of Black interviewees, that they were aware of their own racialization in St. Catharines and worked extra hard to prove their capability as valuable contributing citizens in their community. However, consider these same efforts from the perspective of St. Catharines white elite. Here's Eliza Stevenson owner of the famous tourist hotel Stevenson House. Quote, one great reason why Negroes do not get on so well is because they are possessed, either by custom or nature, with pride, and spend money on dress and adorn themselves, and live very expensively in every way. For Stevenson, it was to their detriment that Black people were spending too much time and too much money trying to act as respectable as possible and live within white standards of society. I'll speak more to such contradictions later on in this lecture. A major thread and underlying justification of the language, tone, direction, and purpose of the report, again, as I mentioned earlier, is to quell the panic in Congress and in the Southern states that the newly freed population of Black people were entirely unsuited to citizenship, and therefore their freedoms should continue to be limited despite their emancipation. To help with that worry and panic, the report repeats the idea over and over again that the rights and freedoms of Black people will, uh, that Black people will enjoy after emancipation are or will be conditional on their good behavior and takes great strides to emphasize their sobriety, their industriousness, their thriftiness, and their capacity to be valuable citizens. That quote, oops, uh, they will be docile and easily governed by laws, and however given to petty offenses, will not be prone to crimes of grave character, that they will be peculiarly susceptible to religious influence and excel in some of the Christian virtues. 
It is easy to see that freedom, equality, and rights as citizens were conditional on their behavior and their ability to fit into white, white society by white standards rather than inherently having rights every citizen has because of their status as humans. Of course, if their rights as citizens are conditional on their good behavior or standard of performance, then it's easy to, to take away or limit rights and citizenship when they behave or perform, perform poorly as a group or as individuals. We'll see throughout tonight's talk, as we see throughout history, that the promise of freedom, rights, citizenship, and opportunity predicated on good and docile behavior and was frequently blunted by racism and prejudice. The notion of conditional respect was reinforced by society and the folks at, uh, that the Howe Report interviewed. Again, here's Eliza Stevenson, the owner of Stevenson House. As a body, the colored people are very tidy and cleanly. They are not, a quarrelsome, they are not a quarrelsome, but good natured people and very temperate as a body. I think the country would be worse off if they were all taken away. We want them here very much. I employ 50 through the summer. I prefer them to the Irish, as you can tell, or I would not employ them. I understand the character of the Negro pretty well and have, uh, and to have a Negro do to suit you, you have got to make allowances. If you want to send a Negro on an errand or on two or three errands, he will bungle half of them unless you are very careful to teach him all you want done. And it is just so with an Irishman. But if you take time enough and make a Negro understand what you want done, he will be sure to do it. The Black employees of Stevenson also subscribed to the idea that good behavior could get you anywhere. Here, his head waiter, George Ross, uh, agrees, quote, I know that if a man will work and behave himself and respect himself, other people will respect him. He will always get work. And it, is, uh, and it is a pleasure to a, to a man to work for his own living and pay his own way through the world. While that is true and virtuous of Ross, racism and prejudice stood firmly in the way of employment uh, and employment was much harder to come, come by than Ross made it seem. For example, one view which perpetuated the lazy trope was commented on by Dr. Mack, quote, it is a physical incapacity for work. He is really unfit for it in cold weather. And in warm weather, his natural luxuriousness leads him to want to enjoy himself. Unfortunately, this kind of administrative and systemic racism is the same which many in institutions struggle with today. That because of their freedom or their rights are conditional on their good behavior or their performance in white society, they're held to a much different standard than others. Over decades, this cements itself into laws, but also into society. When black people went to exercise their rights, say to medical treatment, for example, their treatment was modified because of their blackness. Additionally, the refugees interviewed struggled with this problem. They were well aware that freedom before the law was not the same as freedom from prejudices in society, nor the racism and racialism that quickly established many legal and societal barriers to, to the practical exercising of their freedoms and rights. And furthermore, the, that the practical application of their rights and freedoms like education or their enfranchisement was subject to the political will of society from which they were mostly excluded and subdued and they were left vulnerable to the erosion of their rights over time. 
We'll also see this detailed as Sarah looks at participation in employment. As everyone was told to behave on the promise of employment, but that black people were excluded for opportunities expressly because of their race. The trouble with all of this is that our understanding of rights and citizenship are more nuanced today. We don't necessarily or automatically assume one group's citizenship to be conditional in any way, even if we limit freedoms in response to unjust acts. In the time of slavery, free, free blacks who broke the law risked enslavement and slaves who misbehaved were punished severely, if not killed. Another worry about the black population stemmed from the racialism that dominated medicine in this period. The worry was that refugees were not handling the cold winter climate of Canada well, and that it had negative impacts on the health of refugees, especially those who were biracial. It was so difficult for white legislatures to, uh, legislators to believe that blacks could survive in the northern climate. And, excuse me, and that's why they needed to return home quickly. They believed that because of their blackness, they were less capable of acclimatizing and that they were at higher risk for diseases like tuberculosis because of the cold weather. Medical science in the period wasn't what we know it to be today, especially with our modern and very current understanding of virus transmission. But the idea that refugees were here temporarily because of their inability to handle the cold was reinforced by doctors in the report. Here's Dr. Mack's testimony as it appeared in the report. It strikes me that the mixed races are the most unhealthy and the pure blacks the least so. The disease they suffer most from is pulmonary, more than general tubercular, and where this is not real tubercular affection of the lungs, there are bronchitis and pulmonary affections. I have the idea that they die out when mixed and that this climate will completely efface them. I think the pure blacks will live. I have come to this conclusion, not from any statistics, but from personal observation. I know A, B, and C are mulattoes and they are unhealthy. And I know pure blacks who do not suffer from disease and recover from smallpox and skin diseases and yellow fever, which are very fatal to mulattoes. I think there's a great deal of strumus diathesis developed in the mixed race and produced by a change of climate. Again, this idea of climate mandating why blacks would be here temporarily. He continues further without, this without his testimony not included in the report. We see it very plainly here. They come here and the first winter they will be laid up. They tell me they were never sick before. My conviction is that they die out. They grow shorter and shorter lives until at last they don't reach adult age. There seems to be a downright limit to the race in the northern climate. Dr. Wilson of Toronto and I had a very interesting conversation upon this very subject at one time. He has paid a great deal of attention to the races of men. Another major criticism of the report, as I mentioned earlier, is that Howe did not include as many Black voices as he had interviewed, and instead featured the testimony from interviews with respectable white men like Dr. Mack. One Black respondent, Alfred but uh, Butler of Toronto, included did, was included in the report, said, quote, our people find the climate here pretty tough for the first winter, but we get used to it after a while. Of course, it does not agree with us so well as a warmer climate would. I have become pretty well acclimated here, and I can endure as much cold as most people raised here. 
and another from St. Catharines, John Kinney, a local barber. Our people bear the climate here very well. They battle with the cold as well as the white people. I should like to know why a black man would not go back to the South if he was not born here in Canada. I would go back if you had freedom there. And another from St. Catharines, George Ross, the head waiter at Stevenson House, quote, I had always heard that Canada was a very cold country, and this is mine and Sarah's favorite quote, that no, <clears throat> I had always heard that, a, that Canada was a very cold country, that nobody could live in, but those brought up in it. But I had come to the conclusion that if any human being could live in a cold country, I could live there. I just considered that a man must clothe himself according to the weather. I had sense enough for that. And so when I came to Canada, which was in cold weather, I clothed myself very well. That's the whole, <laughs> I put on a sweater. <laughs> but the climate was not the reason that refugees gave for their coming, staying, or going. Instead, their reasons for being here are quite obvious and mentioned by John Kinney in the last quote. They had no legal freedom in the United States. When that legal freedom was gained, they would return home. Most of the interviews suggest that the price of freedom was the prejudice and the climate they endured. Neither was preferred, but better than slavery. Maybe because of the normalcy of racism and prejudice, or maybe because of its primarily white authorship, the report mentions climate at least three times in three separate sections, sorry, three separate sections but only mentions the prejudices they face as being the same or worth worse than the United States in one section. Number seven of the general conclusions reads that prejudice against them, uh, uh, them among the whites, including the English, is engendered by the same circumstances and manifested with the same intensity as in the United States. Contrasted with Howe's interviews, it's clear climate isn't the problem they must endure. Prejudices. Take Susan Boggs, for example, quote, if it was not for the Queen's law, we would not be mobbed here and we could, uh, sorry, not for the Queen's law, we would be mobbed here and we couldn't stay in this house. The prejudice is a great deal worse here than it is in the United States. The colored people can always get more money than the laboring white people because they can do the work better. And Thomas Likers quote, there is as much prejudice against the black man in Canada as there is in the States. And I've sometimes thought more, but the law makes no difference between black and white. If it, had, if it had been for that, I would not have gone to Canada. If a man spits on us and insults us, we knock him down and the law treats us fairly. We can't do that in the States. And finally, Mrs. Brown quote, I find more prejudice here than I did in New York State. When I, was when I was at home, I could go anywhere. But here, my goodness, you get an insult on every side. The colored people have their rights before the law. That is the only thing that has kept me here. The law will protect my husband. I have always been free. Howe admits as much himself, though also justifying both the troubles of the climate in his conclusion. It's kind of, he wanted to include everything. And here's number eight of the general conclusions reads, quote, that 
they have not taken firm root in Canada and that they earnestly desire to go to the southern region of the United States, partly from love of warmth, but more from love of home. Indeed, Howe captured the struggle between maintaining freedom and enduring the prejudices and climate of Canadian, or prejudices of Canadian society, including medical practices, which some reported as worse than in the States. The reason they stayed, Howe and the testimony reported, was freedom. If they went home, where, uh, if they went home when there was freedom, it wasn't because of the climate or prejudice, but because home was home. The Howe Report also reveals that the Black experience of social freedoms were full of contradictions. Black people were caught between societal expectations to fit within the rigid ideals of whiteness and the oppressive racialized structures reminding them that they could never achieve the whiteness that afforded full freedom and autonomy in society. In the conclusions of the Howe Report, Howe had gathered enough evidence from his testimonies to confidently assert that Black people were, quote, capable of self-guidance and support without other protection that will be needed by poor whites, and that they will be loyal supporters of any government which ensures their freedoms and rights, and further that the population will not be idle but industrious and thrifty, and that there will be less pauperism among them than is usual among our foreign emigrants, therefore forwarding the industrial interests of the country. However, while the testimonies of Black interviewees did emphasize the importance of economic self-sufficiency and industry, their experiences also reveal stark inequalities in the opportunities available to them to achieve such ideals as outlined by Howe. This next testimony is from J.W. Lindsay, a former slave. Quote, I find prejudice here the same as in the States. In this country, they will treat us with having been in slavery. They take hold of it as a handle to throw their stigmas upon us. We may have the best team in the world and the best means in the world to carry on business, but unless we can make business within ourselves, such as gardening or something of that kind, we cannot get anything to do. Here are our children that we think as much as white people think of theirs and want them elevated and educated. But although I have been here for 30 years, I have never seen a scholar made here amongst the colored people. There are two railroads. There is a canal where there are about 300 hands employed and you won't see a colored face at either of them. The white folks don't give them a chance at all. I have asked the authorities there, what are you going to do with the colored people? What will become of them? What kind of citizens will they make? You will only make paupers and culprits of them. Lindsay's testimony suggests that white anxiety over the alleged burden racialized immigrants were feared to place on society were partially caused by the racialism they had created. By denying black people the opportunities to gain employment or participate in society, white citizens were causing the societal issues they feared. 
I think this lends well to the final inference regarding the Black experiences of Black people in Canada that Howe makes in his report. Quote, inference 10, the Negro does best when let alone, and we must be aware of all attempts to prolong his servitude, even under pretext of taking care of him. The white man has tried taking care of the Negro by slavery, by apprenticeship, by colonization, and has failed disastrously in all. Now let the Negro try to take care of himself. I think this might arguably be one of Howe's most agreeable conclusions in the report. Another contradiction pinning the Black community was, competing, was the competing discourse around the simultaneous call for integration into society and their experiences of segregation from society. Howe concludes in his report that assimilation of Black people into predominantly white communities will give the population the best chance to improve their quality of life by quoting, imitating the best features of white civilization and furthers this by arguing that it is not desirable to have them in communities by themselves. Furthermore, Howe emphasizes that as docile people, it is important to keep the population close to religious influence and Christian virtues. Again, as both Adrian and I have stated in earlier parts of this lecture, the work of the report was to assimilate the black, the black population into white society and to live within the rigid ideals of whiteness. Yet the interviews compiled for the report, in these interviews, large contradictions exist between the emphasis placed on integration through assimilation and the reality of the informal segregation of the community. Thomas P. Casey, a black barber who came to St. Catharines from the US as already a free man, he strongly argues in his testimony against what he sees as a self-imposed segregation among St. Catharines black population. He argues that all trouble, that quote, all trouble grows out of their congregating together and speculates that by separating their churches and schools from the white community, they just retain their own manners, habits, and customs that they fetched with them to this country and are not a whit better than their pre-fathers. Here, Casey suggests that the Black community's natural inclination to cluster together with others who share the same cultural values and experiences largely operated against them. Still, other testimonies suggest that Black folks simply had no other choice. J.W. Lindsay, whose testimony I'll refer to again, recounted that, quote, as a general thing, the colored people are not invited into society. I have never been invited to but one party since I hadn't been here. Though Lindsay here is referring to Black exclusion from high society events in St. Catharines, this experience of exclusion ripples across several testimonies. I'd like us to consider this contradiction in three areas, marriage, education, and religion. A key emphasis of the Howe Report was that if free black people followed the white model of freedom and ownership of property, the instinct of family will be developed, marriages will increase and promiscuous discourse decrease. 
While this value certainly has roots in morality, it also builds on the fears of intermarriage and biracial families and children, and the so-called biological consequences as determined by the scientific doctrine of the time. So while black people were deemed worthy of freedom for their capability of living within the white standards of marriage and family, stigma and prejudice upheld white support, upheld white superiority and protected racial purity by keeping the population from marrying outside of their race. Both black and white interviewees expressed fear and anxiety over interracial marriage. According to the testimony of John Kinney, a black barber, quote, the majority of the colored people don't like intermarriage of colored and white people. I want to have a woman I am not ashamed to go into the street or into company with and that people won't make remarks about. It don't amount to anything I know, but it hurts a man's feelings. Here, Kinney might be suggesting that while intermarriage may have not been overtly illegal or criminal, social stigma and judgment from fellow community members was enough to ward people away from the practice. The education system was another societal institution fraught with contradiction. Several testimonies compiled for the report made mention of the poor quality of education Black students received at the Black public school. Thomas P. Casey again, quote, it was the colored people's own fault that they had separate schools. They asked for them in the first place. And then when the white people got out of their schools, they kept them out. And now the colored people find they had, they had made a wide mistake. Casey acknowledged that black children in St. Catharines were experiencing discrimination in mixed public schools, but also argued that knowing less funding and resources would be given to segregated public schools, it would be better for black children to put up with racism in order to receive a better education. Quote, I asked them if they were going to keep their children down and never give them a chance to rise because some white people called them the N-word. Elder Perry, a private school teacher is quoted saying, he had a, yeah, he owned a private school in, uh, in St. Catharines and he describes his private school. Uh, this is a private school which was established because the public school was not a good one. Mr. James Brown, he had been teaching there for the last six years and is the most shameful, shameful inebriate. I opened the select school simply for the benefit of those who would not attend the public school. And I find I have more scholars than expected. The scholars pay 50 cents a month and they are so poor that I have, that I have them pay it weekly. The ages range from 18 to six. The children are mostly girls. I have two classes in English grammar, three classes in geography, and one class commencing the study of Latin, and I have one scholar in Greek. Education was incredibly important for Black families as they saw it as an opportunity for their children to seek advancement. Yet, as we've explored at numerous points throughout tonight, even among the well-educated, opportunities were still not readily open to Black people in the community. Now the contradiction of, um, 
Now, the contradiction of integration and segregation in the context of religion is a particularly interesting one for me. Based on the testimonies compiled, how argued that Black people had the capability to, ex to quote, excel in some of the Christian virtues, yet the white community often de denied Black people inclusion in their churches. Here's a quote from Reverend Elsie Chambers. I went to church one Sabbath and the sexton asked me, what do you want here today? I said, is there not to be a service here today? He said, yes, but we don't want any N-word here. Chambers, experience, Chambers experience is contradicted by that of Thomas Casey. Casey says, quote, when they came here, the churches were thrown open to any who chose to come in. There was no difference between white and black. I have seen white people go round among the colored people here and try to persuade them to attend other churches, but they would not do it. They would never rest until they had built churches for themselves. We know that St. Catherine's Black history narrative is closely tied to religious institutions like the BME Church. And we understand these historical spaces and, and we understand these historic spaces as crucial hubs where the community could thrive. Historically, religious buildings have been places where the Black community can practice autonomy as they worshiped and congregated together. So the contradiction lies here. By creating religious spaces for themselves, the Black community in St. Catharines inevitably separated themselves from white integration. The cost of practicing religious autonomy was the exclusion from other aspects of white society. As we conclude our lecture tonight, we thought it appropriate to our topic if we organized our conclusion in a similar way to how the report organized its 10 conclusions and inferences, which is also great for the idea of keeping things brief <laughs> in point form. Though the list of takeaways may be a bit clunky, they do not, dimin oops, they do not diminish the, um, uh, the importance of the report and the interviews in our understanding of our community's history. Our general conclusions and inferences include <laughs> that racism and racist sentiments toward Black people and refugees existed in St. Catharines and Canada alongside their legal freedoms and that racist sorry, and that racist and racialist testimony given at St. Catharines influenced the Howe Report and the following legal and social poly policy of the Reconstruction Era in the United States. That systemic racism influenced the civil, educational, and medical treatment of Black people in St. Catharines, Canada, and the United States. That racism is systemic in our society since it was put there, justified, and legitimized by testimony that's included in the Howe Report. That refugees made difficult choices to endure harsh prejudices and uncomfortable climates in exchange for their freedom. The contradictions expressed in the testimony and in the Howe Report are reflective of the struggles that refugees and Black people of color faced daily. 
that our Canadian legal rejection of slavery should not be used to wash away the realities of societal prejudices and racism in both our history and our society today. That St. Catharines is extremely proud of the role it played in housing and hosting refugees during the days of the Underground Railroad, yet the societal contradiction of helping or tolerating refugees and subscribing to the prejudices there it is again. The prejudices of the day is something that we need to reflect on as a community. Thank you everyone so much for attending tonight's lecture. I know it was a heavy one, but thank you for keeping with us. If you enjoyed tonight's presentation, please consider making a donation to the museum so that we can continue to deliver the high quality programming you expect from us. Every bit helps. To make a donation, please call the museum during our operating hours at 905-984-8880. If you have any questions about tonight's presentation, you can pop them in the chat box uh, to the right-hand side or maybe below if you're on a, a tablet or smartphone. Uh, you can also post them in the questions in the comments section below. We'd also like to remind everyone to please like, follow, or subscribe on our social media channels, including here on YouTube, to stay in the loop with all of our virtual programming. Please also share the museum in your own social networks to help more of our community join in the historical adventures. If you love the deep dive nature of lecture series, why not also try our podcasts? We have two podcasts, Museum Chat Live and One Hour in the Past. You can catch the podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And also don't forget to subscribe. I know Sarah just mentioned this. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube so you can catch all of our virtual lectures. If you're catching up or if you're new to the series, you can check out the entire playlist of the last feels like 100 years of of lectures, uh, not 100 years, but last year, can you believe it, or at least nine months, 10 months of lectures. Uh, and now we'll take your questions and comments, which I cannot see. And so, um, Sarah, you'll have to moderate. Yeah, no worries. I have uh, the chat up here. Perfect. Um, just some comments right now. Um, Brian, are you? Neri uh, says, he, he brings up a good point. Um, in death, things were also unequal. Many black people were buried in the fringes of the old section of Victoria Lawn Cemetery. That's another very interesting point. Yes, and it's kind of interesting too, uh, beyond, and I think this offers an opportunity for us to also mention sort of the, the hard lines that were drawn in the report, not just about the refugees and black people of color, but also the Irish laborers, uh, either immigrants, recent immigrants or sort of established Irish people who were part of the community, um, but still treated pretty and thought of pretty poorly as the evidence uh, suggests throughout the testimony. And uh, a good, uh, sort of physical representation of that is the the hard lines and separation in the cemetery itself. There's a Catholic section, there's a Protestant section. You know, those are religious boundaries, but they also happen to be sort of race 
uh, or sort of, um, um, uh, what's the word, where you're from boundaries, your um, ethnicity. You know, yeah, nationality. Uh, yeah, yeah, nationality boundaries as well. Um, as Brian mentioned, you know, no mixing even in death. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Jerry brings up a sobering experience. He says that the views of Dr. Mack expressed in the 1860s were given to me in the 1960s. Nothing has changed. I think that's important to realize, to consider why we have to talk about this, right? Because these sentiments are intergenerational and the impact is being felt up until today. So thank you, Jerry, for sharing your experience with us. Doesn't look like we have any questions. Lots of thank yous. Thank you, great. everyone, for tuning in. <laughs> uh, if you do have any questions, you always know where to get, get us. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, you won't see me just, you won't see me next time. So I'd just like to wish everybody a very happy holiday and happy new year. Sarah will be here with, of course, Kathleen Powell, who will be delivering a lecture on our new exhibit called Marking Time. And with that, I guess we'll sign off. Wonderful. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Sure, complete our oh, and also Rochelle. I just see that Rochelle mentioned <laughs> I said I'd sign off, but um, that's a really interesting opinion, Rochelle, and we should talk about that next time. <laughs> oh, man, I'm sad that we just missed that. I did talk, yeah. We just missed it. Okay. Um, but yeah, thank you. Good night. We're going to not do 18 sign-offs. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> I just have to wait for the stream. <laughs>